Hello, and welcome to the penultimate IBMS pod of the year. In this episode, we're joined by comedian, writer, and former chief biomedical scientist in hematology, Dave Spikey. Stay tuned to hear how he fares in our mini hematology quiz and the funniest thing that has ever happened to him in the lab. In Lab Life, we speak to Cheryl Homer about andrology and her appearance on a BBC documentary about male infertility with comedian Rod Gilbert. First up, as was ever the case, the news. As of October 2021, we are experiencing a delay in verifiers available for trainees across the UK, with a large number marked as urgent. Please consider helping us reduce the backlog by offering your service to the profession as a verifier. Congratulations to IBMS Chief Executive David Wells on being awarded Honorary Doctor of Science from his alma mater, Anglia Ruskin University. David Wells was honored for his work expanding the Track and Trace program as head of pathology for the NHS during the height of COVID-19. Following the suspension of a COVID-19 testing laboratory in Wolverhampton, the IBMS has publicly reiterated that mass testing centers set up during the pandemic must assure the same quality of testing and competence of staff as pathology laboratories in the NHS and private healthcare sector. Nominations are now open for the Advancing Healthcare Awards 2022. The Biomedical Scientist of the Year 2022 category celebrates an exceptional biomedical scientist who has used their skills and expertise to advance practice in an innovative and impactful way, making a real difference to patients' lives and inspiring those around them. Uh, We're joined today by Dave Spikey, who's best known as a comedian, actor, writer and film producer. But the reason that he's here on the podcast today is that he was also the former chief biomedical scientist in haematology at the Royal Bolton Hospital. So, Dave, welcome to the IBMS pod. Thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to it, yeah. Ah, pleasure. So, let's go right back to the start, Dave, and tell us what were you like at school? Were you a particularly scientifically minded person? Okay, so uh, this is going to be a long story, cut very short. So, I was born, uh, very working class, neighbourhood, two up, two down, territories, Bolton, we're in the mills, uh, typical street, sorry, sorry, uh, outside toilet, all that. Um, I, but I was blessed. Uh, I, had, uh, I had two wonderful parents. And uh, my dad was a pension decorator by trade, self-employed, no job too small, estimates free. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he had no academic qualifications. He'd done his national service and uh, he came out and he realised he'd missed the boat academically. And so he decided to self-educate. And I was the oldest and I sort of, I hitched a ride, if you know what I mean. So he would, um, as long as it was free, he would take me to um, classical music concerts, he'd take me to art galleries, he'd take me to museums. Um, he encouraged me to read and write. He wrote short stories and poems and had them published. And um, that, that's a, a, a different story for a different day because he ended up getting uh, trained as a, 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 what was it, what was it, time, a charge nurse. And then, yeah, he went to, he got one scholarship to do sociology. And so, so to, just to, just to fill in the background, really, and so yes, yeah, so um, radio comedy was a big deal, and so we listened. We didn't have a television, and so we we listened to the Navy Light, the Clitheroe Kid, the Goon Show, and um, one of my happiest memories is seeing my dad and me just in my mind, just so you know, you're sliding off, you're laughing so hard, you're sliding off the chair, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it was all theatre of the mind, and so when I was at primary school, even every time I did an essay. I would get um, comments, uh, another good essay from David, but why does everything have to have a comedy element to it? And I had no idea I was doing it. That was my slant on the world. That was the way I'd been influenced, you know. 
in a real positive way. And, uh, and so I passed my 11 plus, which I was the only kid in the street, you know, at the time to do that. And I, I, so I went to grammar school and uh, like fish out of water. Um, I'd, but uh, I kept my head down. I was quite not introvert, but I was quite quiet. It's a school, studious. I wanted to repay the investment my parents had put in on me, sort of. And, um, and I did really well. And I was doing languages. And as you go up to third year, I was like you know, Latin, German and all that languages. And then... I found science and I, and, I, and I dumped the languages and I went, yes, you know, maths, physics, biology, chemistry, all that. Um, so, and I did, I did quite well at school. Um, I didn't do brilliantly, but I was in the airstream most of the time. And then I, um, uh, I, I, I passed me all levels. I, I wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. Uh, and I, 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 I'm not madly ambitious, but that's what I had in my mind. I'd love to be a doctor. And so I'd done, I done. I was doing all the A levels that would that would take me there if I got the appropriate grades, which I now doubt whether I would I would have got. But that was the situation as I started my A level course. So my first day in the A level common room, <laughs> all swanky, and I get a phone call because my dad had had an accident, not a bad accident, but bad enough to keep him off work for uh, twelve months, twelve months, and we just moved house and hired to I had to, I had to leave school and become become the breadwinner just just like that. Now, my dad, as I said, was a patron decorator. My dad's claim to fame, and this is absolutely true, he painted the hands on the town hall clock in Bolton. Nice. And he, uh, uh, is it still his paint job today, or have they had to go over and repaint it since? <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably had a couple of coats since, to be honest. <laughs> so, yes, he, he painted the hands on the town hall clock with all four sides there. And what he didn't what he didn't tell anybody was he fell off while he was doing it. Um, you know, but we were half past six. He had nothing to do. It was one of them, you know. Um, quarter past, he just stood his chance. but. Straight down. <laughs> so uh, that's not true, obviously. He, um, no, he, he had an accident. He, he did paint the hands. And uh, so he was in hospital and he'd seen this advert somewhere on his wheel to x ray um, that they were looking for uh, trainee medical laboratory technicians. And he said, Matt, that might be an idea to go and do that. Then that would stand you in good stead when you regain your studies. Uh, if you want to do that, if you want to go on and, and read medicine later on. And so, yes, I left the comfort of the A level staff room, uh, common room on a, on a Friday. And I went for the interview on the Monday and got the job and started almost straight away in, in, in microbiology or bacteriology as it was then, bugs, um, which, which I hated. Uh, all of a sudden I've left that comfort and I'm now in the laboratory just dealing with sputum each and every single day, you know. So yeah, uh, did, did it feel a bit like your life being turned upside down? You know, one minute you're gonna you want to be a doctor, you're sat there in the nice A level, you know, kind of common room, next minute in the lab. You know, how, how did you feel emotionally? Was it something where you're upset and annoyed or were you happy to do it? How did you feel? I was happy to do it, yeah. I wanted to, you know, help gotta help the family. There was never any question. I didn't I, I did share my dad's optimism that later on I would be able to you know, well, at some stage, uh, maybe after ONC uh, or doing my A levels at night school, I would be able to uh, resume the, those, those studies and then, then fulfil that ambition. Um, and uh, and I did actually, uh, I did get offered, get sponsored by my forensic pathologist, Dr. Woodcock, at the Royal Bolton Royal Infirmary, as it was then. Um, I, I won places at a couple of Scottish universities, St Andrews, and I've forgotten the other one. Um, and providing I got decent ONC results plus. Uh, top grade in A-level biology. So um, <laughs> seven of us were taken on that day um, for trainee, and seven of us took the ONC two years later in medical laboratory science, and uh, I was the only one that passed. 
but I only passed. I didn't. I didn't pass in ONC in medical laboratory science. I failed the medical laboratory science <laughs> element. Oh no! So I, so I got an ONC in sciences because I passed all the other sciences. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and my, all my tutors and my consultants at, at Fulton said, "Well, you know, really, because you failed your med lab, you should really retake the whole thing again." And I, so I formed Salford College of Technology up at John Dalton's it is now. Uh, no, Manchester, John Dalton. Uh, <laughs> and I phoned my mum and said, so this, you know, the HNC in uh, haematology, what, what, what do I need? And they went, well, you need no HNC in sciences, medical. I said, whoa, whoa, so just sciences. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just, I just turned my back and went, you know what, I'm going. So yeah. I started my HNC in haematology with just no HNC in sciences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So talk us through, through when you're working in the lab. But what was it like the, the early days of being in the lab, Dave? Well, you know, I'm, I'm of a certain age now, so a lot of it is in the midst of time. But um, I do remember I, going around the lab. So I started off in, um, in Bugs, as I say. And, um, and I, I, was in, I was in the TB lab. It was still quite, you know, we got, you got TB sanatorium up the road, so regular just spits every day, as we used to call them. Uh, culture sensitivity and all that, and, and, uh, and then spreading the slides and, in ZN is a ZN test, the Nielsen test, uh, the stain, sorry, for, um, and I, you had to flame them. You put the stain on, you flame them. And one of my earliest memories was burning my Paul McCartney fringe off by just <laughs> leaning too far over the place. My head's on fire. Um, so I hated bugs. I hated it for that reason. Um, I didn't like working with spit and bodily fluids. Sort of didn't appeal. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I once I was doing a conference not long ago when I saw. Um, a car that said microbiologists do it with culture and sensitivity and not not when I were there they didn't so um, it was so yeah so then I moved to um, histopathology which I sort of like I sort of like all the pre- preparation the dissection yeah, helping the pathologist forensic pathologist whatever um, I wasn't thrilled with the lab work it was basically just at my level it was just watching wax set yeah trying to get excited about that um, and then I yeah and then I discovered hematology and I walked in and it was like something that's a cliche. It's like, oh, I belong here. This is, I don't know. I think people gravitate to the, the same type of people, to the science, the science, to the discipline. And I loved it from the moment I went in. I loved being able to look down a microscope and see the cells. Other, you know, in like biochemistry, just going gamma glutamyl, that's again, gamma glutamyl, I can't even say it, gamma glutamyl transfer, GGT. Um, I don't even believe it. I, don't, I think it's alchemy. I don't think and I can't see it, so I don't believe it. Yeah. But I, love, I loved it in hematology. Um, so what was it like? It was very basic in those days, obviously. We had the only automation, as I recall, was a cool to D uh, for uh, white cell counts and occasional red cell counts. Um, we did about maybe 150, 200 samples a day, most of which, as a, as a junior, as a trainee, you went out on the wards and did finger pricks for the hemoglobin and white cell counts and platelets using those. I wish I could remember the name of the paper. It's got a bulb in it. Gives me tea anyway. Um, and you had to yeah, dilute that as you went along. And, uh, you, and so you spent a lot of time also making up the solutions to go on the walls. Like it's a Drabkin solution, uh, solution, potassium cyanide and ferricyanide uh, for the hemoglobins and the white cell diluents. And so you, a lot of the time it's just basic stuff like that and getting ha- harassed as a young <laughs> on the, on the, uh, the obs and gyne wards by women who just try to embarrass you the whole time. Um, but yeah, you, so you came back and uh, did the hemoglobins on the hemoglobinometer and um, the uh, white cell counts uh, originally were done in the Neubauer. I think I just moved on to the Kulta D. So 
But again, only about, I don't know, I'm guessing again, about 50%, maybe, maybe of the samples got a full hemoglobin and white cell count. And yeah. we did PCVs, hematocrits, we did them in the Wintrobe tubes. I don't know if you remember them before the actual hematocrit uh, centrifuge came in. Um, and uh, what else? We didn't do much else. ESRs. Um, we once bought an ESR machine for 20 grand. Star set. Do you remember that? A star set. I don't, I don't. 20 grand for a rubbish test. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, so it was, it was very, very basic. Um, but, um, but looking down and looking at, but as, you, as you progressed, as I got my HNC and went on to special and got promoted and stuff. And I was, it, I was so lucky to be there at that time because it was rapidly developing hematology. And, mm. and we were a basic lab that basic, did basic tests. Anything unusual, like we found a leukemia, it went off. It went off for testing. It went right, off yeah. We didn't do, um, so I was lucky enough to be a senior at the time and in charge of that section. And so I introduced all the cytochemistry, PAS, pseudon black. We already did like LAPs and stuff like that and peroxidase. So I was like at the forefront of developing those, those tests and bringing them in. It was, it was, it was remarkable. And then later on, I got a massive in, in interest um, in thalassemia, only because we got uh, there was a Greek family came and um, they had to have they had to have the, the, the bride and groom screened because <laughs> if, they, if they both had they both piece of thalassemia trait, uh, which was quite common, I think it was Cypriot, probably Cypriot or anyway, um, Greek Cypriot, um, then they weren't allowed to marry. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and it was like devising. Te- Testing for it and devising these techniques and doing uh, alkali denaturation for the first time for hemoglobin F and 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 uh, developing electrophoresis to separate the A2s and stuff. So I was there for all of that and I loved I loved I loved it all. And were we? You must have been pretty ambitious if you ended up as chief biomedical scientist. Were, were you ambitious or were you just interested? Uh, probably a bit of both. Uh, obvious answer, but I've never been madly ambitious about anything. I've just taken a day at a time and. It's that thing. I suppose it is ambition, isn't it? You aspire to just get better. You look at the next level. And you used to go to college with these people who worked at the you know, Manchester Royal Infirmary, these big specialised labs, and, and they'd be talking about what they were doing at work. And you think, no, I, could, I want to do that. I can do that. But I can bring that to, I can bring that to Bolton at, at some level. In fact, at one stage, Keith Hyde, uh, you probably heard of, or you probably know, uh, who's now Professor Keith Hyde, yeah. uh, invited me to go and work at uh, Manchester Royal um, in the in the hemoglobinopathy thalassemia labs, uh, because by that time in Bolton, I started in, I introduced um, a, fa- a counselling uh, service that uh, was in its early stages, and I left before it really took off, and I don't think it actually did once I'd gone. But um, yeah, so you just aspire to move on to get better and push yourself to the next level. It's not an ambition thing; I think it's just want, you want to do your best, you know, and that's that's what drove me really. And you've amassed a lot of knowledge over the years, so much so that uh, you were on Mastermind, Dave. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about being on Mastermind and what your specialist subject was and how you got on? Uh, right. Uh, okay. So uh, they, they phoned me up and said, will you do a Celebrity Mastermind? And I said, okay, yeah, that'd be good. Because uh, I've always been, again, with, uh, with influences in growing up and my parents and stuff. I, I've always been very good at general knowledge. I've got that sort of mind, that sort of memory. So I said, yeah, I'll have a go with that. And so they said, what do you specialist subjects? So I said, I'd love to do, and this will be quite unusual for viewers, I'd love to do the red blood cell. And that was a bit of a pause on the phone. And she went, well, isn't that a bit narrow? 
I said, no, no. it's microscopic. I've never heard a red stuff call. That's a bit narrow. Microcytic, I think you mean. Um, so, um, uh, so no, so she said, well, what about, can you expand it best? Well, I could do human blood. What about human blood? She went, oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And when I hung up and maybe a few days later, when I started reflecting on it, I thought, hang on a minute. That's quite a big topic, isn't it, really? That's not just hematology, you idiots. That's, you know, immunology. That's bacterial, macrobiology. It's biochemistry. It's all sorts of serology. They could ask you anything, really. So I spent, um, I spent a few weeks just, just boning up on basic, basic other disciplines. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I went on it. Um, I did very well. I can't remember if I scored. Um, I can't remember. Honestly, can't remember how I scored. And uh, did, I think I passed on a couple, can't remember, but I didn't get any wrong. And then, so I was leading after the first round. So you go last, don't you, in the second round. And um, so my general knowledge came up. And I, I just, I just, it was lucky because if I look at some of the other rounds, I wouldn't have scored as well. But the yeah. questions fell away and I got, I got them all, I think, more or less. So I ended up with 30 odd. One of the, one of the, it was at the time, it was the highest ever score. Only because you asked. <laughs> um, but, um, I, was, I was setting you up for it, yeah. Are, are there any questions you can remember where you think, oh, I'm really glad I got that one. That was a tricky one. Um, I don't know I, I don't know why, but I did get a lot of, um, of hemoglobinopathy and hemoglobin type questions, red cell type questions, um, and very, very, very few uh, coagulation because I hate, I, I wasn't into coagulation. Again, because I'm like, that's a clock. You know, I just <laughs> can't see the mechanism. I never really, I, I failed my first um, oral for um, the fellowship. Uh, on questions about uh, coagulation that I was hopeless at, at another basic, but I don't know that they didn't know any advanced coagulation because I didn't really do any. Um, and at one stage, one of the interviewers, um, a senior chief from somewhere, was actually leaning back in his, <laughs> there, was a, there was a consultant in, uh, somebody else, uh, and I, <laughs> he started leaning back in his chair. And when they asked me questions, he'd be going like, Hello. Uh, no, that's not true. <laughs> he'd be like, he was helping me. <laughs> Because yeah. <laughs> I'd done so well on the other stuff, you know, anyway, and that's why I failed that. And then I got asked back to Leeds University, that I mentioned before, and um, to do my oral. One of, the, one of the beautiful things about that was my dad had just was doing his exams first. He'd just won this scholarship in sociology. So we met afterwards and I had a pint in the pub to celebrate because I knew I'd done well on that one, uh, basically because they didn't ask me any coagulation for some reason. <laughs> So, yeah, that's, um, nice. Well, on that moment, let's see if you've still got some of that knowledge now, Dave. I'm going to pass you over to Jordan, oh, wow. for a, a mastermind style uh, round of questions. And hopefully, there'll be some kind of music coming into the podcast right about now. Uh, so, yeah, in honor of the celebrity mastermind, we did decide to do a little quiz as Rob said. <laughs> Uh, when was the last time you did a quiz to do with hematology? Oh, well, with that then, probably 20 years ago. <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> okay. I've been trying hard, trying hard to, you know, pull up for this interview about what we used to do in the labs and stuff. So it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, 20, it's 20 years since I left in, I left in 2000. So it's 21 years since I left the, the labs, you know, so. And I am of a certain age, as I say. I left, started work at the hospital, I've not left school in 68 started working in 68 so we're 32 years to 2000 and then i've been doing this 21 years as well so so the first question is dave what is the medical term for the formation of blood cells hema hema something or other hema oh hemostasis hema 
We'll give you that. He's my poesis. I should have known that. <laughs> what is the, the second question then? Some days I don't know why I'm in the bathroom anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what is the medical term for a nosebleed? Epistaxis. Correct. What 18th century surgeon who showed that it was fibrinogen and not the cells that led to blood clotting is often referred to as the father of hematology? <laughs> oh, fibrinogen. We yeah. Saw that. Um, oh, I don't know. Lister. William Hewson. Where is erythropoietin secreted from in the body? In the liver, probably. Correct. And the final question is... What is, the, <laughs> <laughs> what is the average lifespan of a red blood cell? Oh, 100 days plus about is 20. Yeah. 120 days. Yeah, yeah, 100 days. That's correct. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we got about three there. Well yeah. done. Well, partially Thanks for, so for the second half of the interview. <laughs> so let's move on to the days after, after the lab, Dave. Tell us yeah. about how did you end up leaving the lab and going to the stage? What happened? Again, uh, fate or whatever you want to call it. Um, it was just one of those things, really. I got involved. I love working at the hospital, as I say. Um, um, I, I, don't, I don't think I don't know where I explained that I didn't go back doing my medicine. I didn't want to go back because I was loving it too much. I love being part of a team. I love being part of the analytical process and contributing that way in the in the back room, if you like. Um, and so I didn't really want to go back anyway. But on top of that, I miserably failed my A level biology that I needed. Because like an idiot, again, uh, I'd, I'd assumed that the biology I was doing on my ONC course would carry me through my A-level, surely. And uh, not thinking for a minute that I was only doing human biology. And when sat in the practical of the, um, of the A-level, then the tech year to do my A-level biology, they just kept giving me plants to draw. <laughs> but I have no idea what was going So, uh, so uh, yeah, I, I don't know what the question was. I've completely lost track of the question what was the question originally uh, how, how did you end up moving from being in the right. lab to being a, an actor a writer what, what was the transition there so again so yes yeah, so i'm working i'm loving it and i get involved play football for the hospital team and a group of us got together and said you know what we should do because a lot of hospitals do it we should put on a review every year just a just an excuse to get together have a few drinks uh get on stage do a few jokes and sketches which were very inclusive they were always about like what was happening in our casualty department, we were picking on certain consultants or departments or whatever. And, um, and we just write a few sketches and have a laugh uh, and meet nurses. What could be better? <laughs> and so we got to this review society. It went, it went remarkably well. And of course, as, as staff move on, doctors mainly, um, you, you, uh, you move your way up in terms of like organisation. So I ended up like writing and directing the reviews and the pantomimes. We got into pantomimes then, which sort of went mad. Um, not, and we were hospital-based pantomimes, but then we ended up having to hire bigger and bigger halls because, again, ambition-wise, we just wanted to push it and push it. And um, at some stage, you're doing um, you're, you're doing your direction, and maybe being a bit harsh because somebody's not doing the lines that you've written correctly. And they're only doing it for fun. They've been on night shift for that before, you know. <laughs> and uh, and somebody will will take offence. I'll tell you what, stick it, do it yourself, and walk off. And that's basically what happened. I had to go on stage. I had no ambition to go on stage. A bit like looking in the labs. I like, I like being in the background. I like being productive. And I like listening to the audience, laughing at stuff I've written, constructed. Um, but now I'm on stage. So I had to go on stage. 
and do it, do this part, because I knew all I'd, I'd written it. So, um, And the buzz I got out of actually seeing them laughing was like a bit of a drug reel. It was a bit like, wow, and her, you know, her stand up on your back of your neck and oh, just like addictive, this, this is remarkable. And I came off and, you know, it was already in my head that I was wanting to be more of that. Uh, when this nurse, Abigail Todd, she was, um, uh, don't call me Abigail. Uh, I won't answer to Abigail. Just call me Abby. Okay then, but now you know you're a bit odd. That's your name now, a bit odd. <laughs> a bit odd. She said to me, I, I love comedy and I've watched them all and you, you've got something. You should be a comedian. And within um, a month or two, I'd, I'd gone off doing a talent show in Scarborough to... As far away from Bolton as I'd get in one night. Yeah, yeah. If I was rubbish, nobody would know. <laughs> and uh, I did it at Scarborough Opera House. It's not there now, it's a world of wicker. So that's a shame. Uh, and, uh, and then I won it. I won the, it was a heat, then I won the semi final, and then I won the final. And I thought, this is, this, I, I, was, I was born to do this, really. I was born to be on stage. So that got me through to the national finals. Uh, Stairway to the Stars. <laughs> very nice, very, very uh, dramatic. Uh, so I went into Torquay where the final was, and the judges were um, Larry Grayson, the great Larry Grayson, Buster Merrifield from Fools and Horses, uh, Dora Bryan, great, great comedy actress, and um, and Nina Mishkov, who was a pretty harsh TV and radio critic. Anyway, and um, so I won that as well. And uh, so I came back up north, and uh, this is like 80s. You know, late 80s. And uh, I thought, yes, I'm going to have a go at this. And But then it, it immediately brought back down to earth because back in those days, there, was, there, weren't, there weren't the sort of clubs. There weren't comedy clubs. So I was yeah. to, to do the social club circuit, the Wicked Men's Club circuit. And I uh, found out rapidly that I wasn't born to be on stage. <laughs> it, was, it was hard work because... I tell stories. I don't do gags. I just tell stories, and most of them from my experiences, life experiences stuff. And uh, audiences would look at me, staring, going, "Has he not got a fat mother-in-law? What's going on? Does he not know an Irishman? Does he not know an Irishman who walks in a pub with a crocodile?" And um, and and so I struggled in most of them, you know. But I gained a lot of material for when I started writing, uh, co-writing Phoenix Nights, and that it reminded me of that world. Uh, but but then again, so I'm saying this was late 80s, and I really didn't start taking it seriously till the mid-90s. Well, no, early 90s, probably, because I was doing well at work. I was enjoying work. I just got from where I was from chief post. I was going on conferences to St. Thomas's in London about hemoglobinopathies. I was going all over the place. I, was, I was, I'd started lecturing at uh, Manchester Poly in hematology uh, on the special, um, not every week, but, you know, uh, a few times a year. Uh, again, Keith Hyde and Len Sealer invited me along. And so um, it was just there at the same time. And then you get to a certain stage and it happened. I was actually, because I mentioned, I was at St. Thomas's doing uh, a study with Alan Mackin, my haematologist, uh, doing a uh, yeah, big, big conference on hemoglobinopathies and thalassemias. And, uh, and then just during one of the breaks, I looked at my diary to see what was I was doing in the night, at the night time. And uh, I was... Um, on the Sunday, the coming Sunday, I was at Blackpool Opera House supporting Cannon and Ball. Then on the Tuesday, no, then the night after, I was with Lee Evans, a comedy club in Cheshire somewhere. Then I was with Jack D at the Buzz Club in, Ch- in Charlton. And then I was with Eddie Azard. And then I was with Joe Brand. And I just thought, 
You know, I was well, not just not just supporting people at comedy, but also the diversity the diversity of those comics. Mm. Because then I was also the week after I was with Max Boyce. You remember Max Boyce? I was with Max Boyce in Wales doing a Welsh tour as well. So it just it just happened, and I'm just stunned by it, ridiculously so by how this had crept up on me because I was concentrating on on two can, things to create. Can you can you remember the day where? You weren't anymore a biomedical scientist that did comedy. You were a comedian that had been a biomedical scientist. Was was there a moment where there was that realization, or was it just a gradual move into a different yeah. world? It just merged. It was a, a gradual. I always say that I um I finished work on Friday the thirteenth of October in the year two thousand, um, and hung my coat up, my lab coat up for the last time, turned my microscope off for the last time, and took all the lab in. And walked out, and two weeks later, I was on a car park in Farmworth, dressed as a giant berry, uh, singing "Walking in Sunshine" while a ten foot, <laughs> while a ten foot cock and balls in place behind me. You can edit that, in. but um, no, we're, we're keeping that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and just sat there in the rain, thinking, "Was this a good career move?" <laughs> dressed as a giant berry. Um, so that was that was that that was a um, it was a, it was a gradual thing because like. Um, Okay, so I took a year off. No, I didn't. Let's take this right. So I started doing that Peter Kerr thing. It was the first big writing job I'd had, even though I'd worked with Peter a couple of times on other projects. And so um, because it was six different episodes and I was only in one episode, um, I took all my af- most of my afternoons off, annual leave. <laughs> that went down well, you can imagine. Um, and so um, ju- just for the writing and the script meetings and also the rehearsals and then the filming, so I took all in one year, and then the year after we got we got the commission for Phoenix Nights out of that Peter Kerr thing, one of the episodes. And I thought I can't do that again; that's not fair. So I um, I applied for a sabbatical. Well, I've been here, been here thirty years, well, whatever years it was. Um, I, I should really maybe I'm allowed to go into human resources, and they said, well, if you get your permission of your consultants in your head of department, then yes, yeah, you can have a year's sabbatical. So um, brilliant. So I kept my job open for a year while I went and did Phoenix Nights and stuff. And then just at the last minute, clinical director, biochemist, um, uh, objected and said, that's not what sabbaticals were designed for. So he, he blocked it. So I went to industrial tribunal and I got my union rep, the brilliant, late and great Mick Coyne, my union rep involved and told him the story and showed him the evidence. And I'd, I'd written supportive evidence for my consultants and my mm-hmm. Head of the department, and um, so we had so that, but that you know how long that takes. So that so this is like um, October by that and that happened. Uh, no, no, no. It was it was, um, it was anyway. It doesn't matter, does it? It was about th- six months later, six, seven months, eight months yeah. later. And so we sat in this big boardroom with um, all the hospital management and clinical director and all that came on and outlined his case. We outlined our case, and they just stared at clinical director and went, "What are you doing?" And just really, you know, ashamed him into saying, well, as we don't know why he did it, really. I don't think he liked me very much. <laughs> uh, and so they said, no, no, your job is open for you. Um, and you can come back up until whenever, uh, October, whatever it was, the 13th. And so I said, uh, I said, no, no, um, thanks. Him. I just wanted my, day, I wanted my day in court, if you like. So by that time, Series 2 had been commissioned and, and on we went. But uh, yeah, it was so, so it all merged into one, really, you know. 
So a lot of people listening, Dave, will probably know you best for Phoenix Nights, Bullseye, <laughs> Chain Letters, Eight Out of Ten Cats. Like, which of those has been your favourite TV experience? Oh, um, by, by by far would be would be Phoenix. Um, it's my first. I had to audition for it because I'd never acted and I'd, written, I'd co-written it with Peter and Neil. And uh, and that, they were sprung on me and said you should audition for Jerry. And uh, I, I was thrilled to do it, but I've never had any experience about amateur dramatics. Anyway, I went and I sort of knew Jerry. I knew him inside out, and I just was, I just was Jerry. And I got the got the part. Um, and and uh, I can't remember the question again. Uh, <laughs> which of which of them was your favourite? Which of them David. was the kind of the best experience for you out of all the TV stuff you've done? I'm getting this by satellite, aren't I? So yeah, so uh, up to, yeah, so Phoenix being on being on set and being on uh, being part of it. And we knew we'd worked very, very hard on writing it, Neil and Peter and I. Uh, we'd, we'd re, we all had experience in comedy. So we were confident that every scene, every scene we didn't leave was milk for the most number of laughs, whether it was like dialogue or visual gags or audio gags on the television or the radio. So we, it was just a great experience doing it. And also because of that, when you were on set, if something wasn't working, you could just get together and put it right. Um, and uh, and, and we, it, it was a band of brothers. Everybody came to uh, because we cast a lot of people. Well, I say we, I wasn't involved in casting, but they, they cast a lot of uh, our, our mates off the circuit, a lot of comedians who'd never acted before as well. So it was just one long um, party, really. Um, of course, once you get on set and the camera's rolling, it gets a bit gets a bit stricter because you've got time constraints and financial constraints and stuff. So, um, but it was a wonderful, wonderful experience and uh, and the feedback that we got from doing it. And it was a world we loved. It was a world we, world we, did, we knew with affection. Wikimen's clubs um and so it was yeah it, that was a bonus as well and then we did the live shows phoenix nights live in 2015 for comic relief and that was the most amazing thing a because we got everybody back together in an arena and b because we extended it and extended it. i think we did 15 nights 15,000 people a night in 2015. i know and we made about i think about five five and a half million for comic relief and uh, but the point was like this was this, what was stunning was the fact that Phoenix finished in two thousand and three, and this was like twelve years later. We still had that sort of audience, mm. so it was, it was the whole thing was from start to finish was just a, a massive thrill. It was like a pinch yourself moment. Am I really involved in this? It's fantastic. And and since then you've gone on to do a lot more, some more writing, some producing. Ideally, do you want to be in front of the camera or, or behind the camera? Where's your natural home? Um, well, I know it's a cop out. Um, I love, see, I love the creative process. I love, I did ask, uh, I did, um, it's quite a while ago now, I did a thing called Magnolia for BBC Comedy Players that I wrote about painters and decorators. Yeah. So my dad, dad fed into that, and my best mate, who's a painter and decorator, and my father in law, they were painters and decorators as well. So, and I loved it. And it got the BBC made all the right noises and the production company, Red Productions, who were massive. Um, I went out for a meeting with them because it looks as though it was going to happen for the series. And they said I could direct it because I knew it so well. And that was a big disappointment that I didn't get to do that. Um, I directed a short film that won an award at the Co-Filmic Film Awards. Um, it's only a short film. It's got, got the appetite for that. But if I had to make the choice, I'd want to be... I'd want to be on camera. I'd want to not not in a narcissistic way. I just I, I love performing. I love I love delivering the lines rather than directing them. I've just done a I don't know if you've seen it. I've just done a sitcom that's on at the moment on BBC Two. So it's called Alma's Not Normal, 
Yes, yeah, so I saw this popped up on Twitter. Some, right. some mentions, some mentions of you appearing in there. So tell us a bit yeah. about that, Dave. I was not normal. It's brilliant. Um, so in lockdown, getting towards the end, was getting a bit desperate for the company was going to go under. We've not had any work for eighteen months. So I was just done a few um, Zoom corporate events. Um, I got contacted by a television company saying we're making this new uh, sitcom. Alma's not normal. It's written by Sophie Willen. She's exec producing on it as well. She's from Bolton. She wants you. She'd love you to be to be on it. Uh, and they sent me the casting notes. And I play my character is a is a useless failed acting coach at Bolton Acting Studio, which doesn't exist, obviously. And his his only claim to fame was he was an extra three times on Coronation Street. But he thinks it's a big deal, and he's passing on his knowledge. And she comes uh, Alma's uh, Sophie's character is Alma. Alma's not normal comes to the class. Well, I got the casting notes through and it said, oh, so Ian is middle-aged, uh, overweight and tired. And I was still a bit, so like, middle-aged? I love some of that. That's brilliant. So um, <laughs> it was a wonderful thing. It's, it's, it's a very moving, it does that thing where it manages to balance comedy and tragedy. It's about her life. It's, it's loosely based on Sophie's life growing up in Kerr with um, a, a, a mum who's a heroin addict addicted to arson and the grandma who don't want to know who just had into having a good time on her own. And then uh, grandma uh, brings up part of the time, then she goes into Kerr, this old castle of disasters in Kerr. And it's about her being wildly ambitious and aspiring to do better out of that background. And it's, it's very uplifting, but it's joyful, but it's very, uh, very, very sad in parts as well. It's about life. It's real life on for those, for those like Sophie who, um, and Alma. Who, who do try the best to get out of this situation. So, yeah, I think there's been, we've had five episodes. It's the last one on next Monday. I don't know when this is going out, though. So uh, it's what, what, what channel's this on? Can people catch up on the iPlayer? Yeah, it's BBC on one? Yeah. Yeah, it's BBC Two. It's all on our, like, all six episodes are on iPlayer. Uh, I'm only in, I, I say, I'm, I'm only in, I'm in four episodes, but it's in like one or two scenes, but they're good. And so I think the point I was trying to make was that uh, what I love about being in front of the camera and being able to do that is also being, if they let you have the creative license on camera, uh, like Sophie did, bless her, to say, These, this is your script, you know, stick to it as well as you can. But if you find you'd rather do it another way, do it another way. So every scene we did about 15, 20 different takes, and that's on every camera angle, you know, and there were two camera shoots and... Um, it was just, it was, it was brilliantly, it was brilliant. That, a great release of not having that constraint of having to be bang on on the lines that you could make it your yeah. own a little bit. But um, so I love all that. That's what I love. Of it. If you've got that, if you've got that flexibility, yeah. And before I pass you over to Jordan for the mm. final quick fire round, <laughs> um, don't worry, I don't think it's more blood questions, but I can't promise you it's not. I can't remember. <laughs> No more questions. Um, uh, no more quiz questions. Uh, how have you? You're, you're going back on back on stage at the moment, Dave. Right? You've got a few live dates coming up. This yeah. podcast will be out uh, just at the start of November. Right. So, is, is there anywhere around the country that people will be able to see you still? And how do you feel about getting back out on the road again? It's great. I've done, uh, obviously, this is a tour that was postponed. It's called The Funny Thing Happened. And it was postponed for the spring. I've done a few days, spring 2020. It postponed till autumn 2020, then spring this year. I know I'm getting back on the road. And what I've done is I've just I've managed to, I've cultivated everything together. And I'm just basically doing the theatres that I love and also the ones that I can get back to bed at a decent time. So I'm not, it's mainly northern based. So yeah. I'm Yorkshire, Lancashire, Cumbria, down to Buxton. It's further in Buxton, 
Um, uh, and it's, it's, quite, um, it's just brilliant. I mean, the audience, you know, the reception on stage, people just want to get out and laugh. They just want, they just want to have, and have a really good time. Uh, my first show took me, I reckon it would, if I remembered rightly from the year before, it would take me about, you know, an hour and three quarters. And, I, and it, I'm, I'm looking at my watch because they were laughing too much. That's a complaint from a comedian. You just, you just stop it. <laughs> You just stop laughing you're ruining my timings <laughs> um, so no so it was it was it was, it was fantastic the, the four I've done have been fantastic and I've got a few coming up and uh, they're on my management website which is www.felixnight see what I did there felixnight certainly did <laughs> and um, but I've only got I think from from November I've only got about half a dozen I think and then we're going to next year but they're all on there they're all on the website under my profile or whatever uh, but I mean, I'm so thrilled, pleased to say, and thrilled to say that most of them are sold out. Um, oh, quite a few, yeah, a few haven't. But and the, what's lovely, what's what's nice is that people have kept those tickets since since 2020, basically. Yeah. I mean, they could have just cashed them in and said no. But uh, yeah, so the, the ticket sales have been brilliant, and uh, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm just loving it, and I'm loving. Alma's not normal as well. Just this gives you a great buzz to see something, being involved in something like that. Fantastic. That's a nice note for me to pass you over to Jordan on. Mm-hmm. Yes, Dave. So we usually finish with a very quick fire round. I will read the start of a sentence and all you have to do is finish it however you see fit. So I'll <laughs> ask. <laughs> my my favourite place to go on holiday is? Spain. There you go. Yeah. Cool. So you ready? Mm-hmm. All right. So my funniest story from the lab is... Okay, the funniest story from the lab was me phoning up um, at haemoglobin results on call in the middle of the night, um, and it was uh, it was four, four grams, four grams per deciliter. This is when haemoglobin still had an A in it. And um, so I phoned up I phoned <laughs> up this ward, and the nurse answered, and went, hello, D4 ward, whatever. I went, right, I've said, I've got an urgent haemoglobin result for Mr. Johnson. So it won't be a minute, hung up, disappeared. I'm like, what? I said I did say it was urgent, didn't I? I did say it was urgent. And about uh, two minutes later, three minutes later, he's on for Mr. Johnson speaking. No, when I said it was foreign, I don't mean <laughs> <laughs> not me. It was foreign. You could have killed him making him walk down the lamp to the phone. <laughs> Are we delivering um, bad news to Mr. Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean with Lobin's four, is that bad? Um, <laughs> But uh, we, and also when uh, the funniest things happened when computers came in as well, didn't they? Because the office staff were trying to decipher the doctor's handwriting. And I'd be forever in the, uh, in the office going, okay, who's done this one? Upper abdominal penis. Me? My upper abdominal penis? That is, it, that is impossible. I mean, it, it's pains. It's upper abdominal pains. You know, it's <laughs> an upper abdominal penis. You'd never go out the house. Stop it. Um, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, lots and lots of, I've got lots of stories. I did, uh, one of my tours was based on it. Yeah. Uh, excellent. So the second question is, the one thing I missed about being a biomedical scientist is? Um, I miss, I miss the analytical process. I miss doing my thalassemias, my hemoglobin opposite, and turning up, uh, turning up something abnormal and then, and then following it through, you know, um, with whatever tests are available. Um, and, um, it's that whole thing about watching science in action. I just, I just love the whole practical side of it. Ah, excellent. Uh, and so, my next one would be: if I was to write a comedy set in a laboratory, it would be called. Oh, it would be called Bad Blood. 
<laughs> Why? I don't know. Just read it. Why is that? No idea. Um, no idea. I wrote one. I wrote one about setting up. No, I didn't. It was mainly a hospital, but it was pathology as well. Um, no, bad blood would do, wouldn't it? Because bad blood means between between characters and also bad blood transfusions and I don't know. <laughs> I'm looking forward to watching it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> one good thing to come out of lockdown is I learned Spanish. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> And just to finish off then, Dave, okay. the, first, the first thing I'm going to do after this podcast is... Oh, sorry, me, not you. I thought, well, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> no, you know what? you got after this podcast is, I'm going to put some beer in the fridge. I've just I've, been, I've got a list of things, of jobs to do. Like, my wife always leaves me lists of jobs to do. And one is put the beer in the fridge, because we went shopping yesterday, and I left it out. I was a bad person, so I'm not going to put the bad, uh, that in the fridge. And I've got to sort out my computer because it's not working properly. Mm, excellent. Well, we've reached the end of the podcast now. Anything else you want to add, Rob? No, just um, everyone should get online after they've listened to this, especially if you live up in the north, and see if you can find some tickets for Dave's remaining shows. And uh, also, just remind us of what the programme was called, Dave. I've, I've got a terrible memory that you've, uh, that you've been in recently. Uh, Alma's not normal. You can, yeah, you can watch it on BBC iPlayer. Um, I think it's up uh, up for a few awards. Um, it's just it's a it's a it's different and it's it's brilliant. She's she's going to be a big star, I think. Fantastic. Well, everyone, go and check that out. And from me and Jordan, thank you so much for your time today, Dave. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and I'm sure everyone at home has really enjoyed listening. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Perfect. Thank Cheers. Bye. 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 Hello and welcome to Lab Life for the IBMS pod. My name's Dr. Marty Kashara and I'm from the University of Wolverhampton. And again, I'm your guest presenter for this part of the IBMS podcast. Today, I've got a very special guest who has literally the future of humankind in their portfolio. Why don't you tell us who you are and what you do? My name is Cheryl Homer. And I'm a biochemist. I'm also a state-registered clinical scientist. And currently, I have been working in a male fertility clinic, which I set up in 2007. And this fertility clinic is licensed by the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. And we are the only licensed clinic in the UK that focuses directly on male infertility. I also have the pleasure of having an honorary position at University of Kent so that I can also uh, be associated with uh, academic research as well. And this is how I spend my time. It's clear that you've had a really successful career so far. So how did you get to where you've got to today? I did start as an academic research scientist 
I'd worked for many years actually in the United States where I was working on oocyte maturation. And during that time, I was collaborating with a reproductive physiologist also working on oocytes. I was looking at signaling mechanisms to trigger resumption of oocyte maturation. So when I returned to the UK, one of the things I thought I would do is get some experience working in the field of IVF. And I became fascinated with clinical embryology. And I was very fortunate to get a post at Barts Hospital, which involved running the laboratory at the uh, Barts IVF uh, unit there. And at the same time, I had an academic post as well, which allowed me to pursue some of my academic work. So it was really ideal. And from there, I, I was working in IVF for quite some time when it dawned on me that really there was a huge lack of investigation and acknowledgement of the role of the, the man, the sperm, if you like, in creating uh, healthy ongoing embryos. And so over time, I decided that I wanted to set up my own clinic where we would actually be looking at uh, the male fertility side of things. So here I am today. Now, of course, when we're talking about male fertility, especially in terms of biomedical science, we're talking about andrology, I guess. So what is that and where does it fit in the disciplines of biomedical science? Unlike gynecology, which is uh, the study of the female reproductive tract, andrology is the study of the male reproductive tract. And yet, you know, we've all heard of gynecologists, but very few people recognize the role of andrologists. And unfortunately, it is very marginalized and it needs to have its own platform so that it is put at equally important, if you like, with gynecology. What are some of the most common causes of male infertility that you might see? So male infertility, just like female infertility, is usually a clinical problem. It is a pathology. And so we have to look at it in that way. And if we look at the conditions that are associated with male infertility, the leading known cause of male infertility is varicocele. So varicocele is a clump of varicose veins within the testis itself. And because you have this clump of varicose veins, you have an impairment in blood flow. You have a lot of toxins coming from the kidneys. You have an increase in testicular heat as a result of that because the blood coming from the body at 37 is heating up the testes, which should be at 33 to 34 degrees. And you've also got a restriction in oxygen nutrients coming into the testes. So 40% of men with primary infertility have varicocele and up to 80% of men with secondary infertility have varicocele. The problem is that a lot of fertile men have varicoceles as well. About 15% of fertile men have varicoceles and it doesn't affect everybody, but it is nonetheless the leading known cause. Now, I'm very jealous because you featured on a BBC documentary called Stand Up to Fertility with the excellent Rod Gilbert. So what was that like? So Rod is the most amazing human being. I have great respect for Rod because he's really done so much to raise awareness of infertility, to talk about this taboo subject. And he's really getting people to talk about it. So he 
initiated his campaign, the Him and Fertility campaign, back in January 2021. And since that time, he's set up, together with the largest fertility, infertility charity, which is the Fertility Network UK, he's set up a support group, which is for men only. So only men can join this group. And it provides them a platform where they can really engage with other men who are experiencing similar problems to themselves, where they can talk without the focus being on the woman, as it always has been, and recognize that they are not the only ones suffering, that there are a lot of people out there experiencing what they are. And actual fact, the statistics show that approximately one in 12 men are having problems with their fertility. So it is quite a common thing and men need to feel supported and they they can talk about it. And it does help when you do talk. If everybody's like me, they might be thinking exactly the same thing that I am. And what I want to know is you literally help people to make babies. But do you ever get to meet any of the babies you've helped to make? Yes, I do, fortunately. One in particular, which I think would be quite interesting because this couple had been trying to conceive for 15 years and they had multiple IVF or ICSI attempts where you microinject the sperm directly into the egg without fertilization. So you would think, gosh, you know, this is a serious problem. You're putting this sperm into the egg and the eggs are still not getting fertilized. And they came to see me and the chap had never really been properly investigated. And of course, one of the main things about fertilization is that the sperm has to activate the egg using an enzyme called PLC Zeta. And I fortunately had some links with a colleague in Oxford, Professor Kevin Coward, who carries out some tests looking at PLC Zeta activity. And we sent him down there and he looked at his sperm and he didn't have any PLC Zeta. So obviously that was why the eggs weren't fertilizing. So Mm. we managed to send him to a clinic that was doing artificial egg activation. And they came back to see me a year or so later with a healthy little boy. And this was the first time they'd ever had embryos, first time they'd ever got pregnancy. And it resulted in this little boy, which was just delightful. That sort of leads us on to where the future might be going in your subject area. So where do you see the future of andrology, say in the next 10 years? So I think andrology, we really need to increase the diversity of the testing that we offer for male infertility. Currently, if a man goes and sees his GP, he's sent to an andrology lab where he gets a semen analysis, end of story. And all the diagnosis is based on the semen analysis. In other words, if there's poor semen analysis, the, the the couple are referred for IVF. There are so many other tests coming out now. There's a lot of evidence coming out in the literature for other things that are important that should be incorporated into an andrology lab for advanced testing. We're looking at things like oxidative stress, DNA fragmentation, even looking at the male semen microbiome, because there's more evidence coming to light to show that the seminal microbiome can have a significant impact on male infertility. And also certainly in the female with regard to ongoing pregnancy and miscarriages. So I think all of these things we need to be aware of. We we also need to be aware of our role in guiding the doctors appropriately because diagnostic testing for semen analysis, if it's poor, doesn't mean that the patient should be referred for IVF. That's not a treatment. 
it's a circumvention. A treatment is to actually go and be seen by urologists to investigate clinical issues like paracetamol, like microlithiasis, like in, uh, male accessory gland infection and prostatitis, all of these things that can affect fertility. And this is the role of the andrologist to be able to offer these tests and make the appropriate comments to the GP so that they can refer appropriately. I'm really hoping that listening to this, we might have some student biomedical scientists or some practicing biomedical scientists that are now really interested in a career, perhaps in andrology. So what sort of advice would you give to those people? Well, I think, first of all, it's great to be interested. And I think you really have a huge role to play if you're going to be an andrologist. Don't let yourself be put into a corner. You need a voice. We andrologists need a voice more than anybody else to show just how important the work is that we are doing. And never forget the patient behind the test that you're looking at. I think if you want to be an andrologist, there are some courses out there I do actually teach on the STP andrology course, um, which is currently being run by Dr. Michael Carroll up in Manchester Metropolitan University. So if you can get your course yourself onto one of those courses, that's terrific. They are hard to get onto because there aren't many places, but that's a really good starting point because you can also get state registration as well at the same time. I mean, there's also, if you want to just sort of get your regular state registration as a biomedical scientist and then uh, get training in andrology, in an andrology laboratory, that's also a very, very good way to do it. So I think those are the main ways that you can get into the field per se. And then there's the clinical aspects as well which are done in IVF clinics. And again, andrologists need to speak very loudly when they're working in an IVF lab because it's mainly run by embryologists and the andrology is sort of just on the side. But you really need to be standing up for your men. <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for today, Cheryl. So again, thank you for taking the time to speak to us on Lab Life. Thank you so much, Martin. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Well, folks, that's all the time we've got for Lab Life today. If you want to watch the fantastic documentary that Cheryl Homer features in with Rod Gilbert, you can watch that online on the BBC and it's on for like the next couple of months. Thanks for listening, everyone. Tararabit. Hello again. Rob, the editor here, just popping up with a quick addendum to say a couple of hours before this podcast was due to go live, we had the following message from Dave Spikey's management. It might be worth mentioning, if possible, that Dave has tested positive for COVID, so he has had to cancel his two shows this week, Workington and Middleton, which will be rescheduled. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out, so whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye. Bye.